Pulse Audio Podcast Network. Hello, Herstory heroes, and welcome to our last episode of Black History Month. <laughs> I really hope you there's a little bit of like, oh no. Yeah, not thank God. Yeah, right. Although, well, hopefully, if that's their reaction, they aren't listening to our podcast regularly. Anyways. I was going to say, no one makes you do this. <laughs> this is your own fault. But yeah. seriously, welcome. Um, this is, will be our last episode of Black History Month, or at least celebrating Black History Month. I mean, we'll still we'll cover probably do people. it next year. Yeah, I mean, I would assume. Um, but yes, welcome back. We love to have you. And I'm Kelly. I'm Emily. And that made me kind of anxious. I was like, is this how you're telling me we're not doing the podcast <laughs> and anymore? I'm done. You bitch. <laughs> I just thought it would be funny. I liked it. No, it was creative, if not anxiety inducing. <laughs> I just, you know, everyone has to feel how I feel. <laughs> if I have to feel this way, all y'all need to feel this way. Yeah. Stressed. Stressed, anxiety ridden. You can you can go listen to uh, me talk about anxiety on Friends in Your Ears when I was on that one. That's right. So Kelly did an awesome thing. I don't think we've talked about it yet. Have we not? Did we no. just like I did a thing and we just went? Eh, Kelly did a thing. No, because it's, it's been so long since we uh, recorded. We're doing a twofer. Oh, yeah. So our last episode was also a twofer. Was well. Uh, recorded on the same day but kelly uh teamed up with some with another podcast what's it called it's oh sorry (laughs) that's probably gonna be real loud for you emily um it's called friends in your ears and what it is is they take two podcasters who have never podcasted together so it was me and then sunny from a podcast called a book of lies which is also really good and you should go listen to and she asks us like questions about like how we got started podcasting and like what our favorite podcasts are who we listen to and then at the end like one random question that she just picks that has absolutely nothing to do with podcasts. thongs or boy shorts uh boy shorts anyways <laughs> i know I know, say, I know your answer um but our our question actually ended up being about uh, if we had to give a TED talk, oh, shit. what would it be on? And mine was, I said I would do anxiety and like living with anxiety and coping with anxiety. And it was cool. You should go listen. So it, it's, and I've listened to it like a few of her other episodes, of course, because I'm not just going to go and like listen to only the one I'm in because that would be kind of mean. I mean, that's the first one she listened to, oh, but 100%. then she went and listened to some others. Um, I'm trying to pull it up so I know which, here it is. So that was episode um, 44. It came out on the 31st. So you should go listen to that. It was really interesting. And Sunny was absolutely wonderful. And um, the host of Friends in Your Ears that I'm totally blanking on her name, which I feel terrible about, is also wonderful. Can I just say anxiety does that to me when I meet someone Kathy. and they tell me their name? Kathy okay. Name. But when they tell me their name, I'm so focused on the handshake. Don't fuck up. Don't eye fuck contact, up. Yeah. Smile. And I immediately after they say their name, I'm like, oh shit, I wasn't no, paying attention. No, I have 100% <laughs> like talk to somebody about their name and then like had a side conversation and gone back and gone I'm so sorry but what was your name I've stopped feeling shame for ask I I find more people are like that than not so I've started to feel less shame for double checking on people or I just avoid saying their name ever again hey you what's up like if if it's someone I know like like if it's a friend of a friend and I'm like I'm probably never gonna see you past this one interaction I'm not gonna bother to learn your name right if I forget it. Yeah. If I don't forget it, well, you're just lucky then. And I'm it so probably proud of you. it probably means that you have a name similar to somebody else I already know. 
let's be honest but i'm so proud of you because they reached out and they were like hey is anyone into this and, and it was like, literally hey. like they needed someone like someone had dropped out so they needed someone like to record in like two days and i was just like uh i guess i can but i know it's hard to put yourself social out anxiety like that. gonna do it anyways yeah so and I'm, I'm, proud I'm, of you. I'm i'm doing it for us in our podcast oh i feel you i feel you too right here in my left tit <laughs> trying to actually feel you but you're like oh there's your foot i was like but you're sitting indian style on your chair so i can't play footsie with you well i mean with that attitude mm-hmm. <laughs> um so yes go listen to that that was a thing i did and i'm there you go that's my thankful for this week i'm thankful for cat kathy um getting me on her podcast and letting me be a guest and making me feel at ease and like it was it was a really fun process that's awesome. of course like beforehand i was like terrified like why did i do this but she was like no you know it's like it's a conversation between friends even though we don't know each other yet and i was See, like okay i feel like if kathy's ever ready to uh hit the nuclear option on her podcast kathy call me <laughs> if, you want, <laughs> if you want the other half if you want this and i know you don't <laughs> no one does i do all Aww. the time and our listeners at least kind of 24 7 they at least want like half of you they yeah. want half of each of us they're like i can't deal with the whole of one of them so i want half of each they're always mad when i start first because they have to figure out where your story starts they're like, I, <laughs> they're like, I god damn Kelly. it i have to fast forward how long do i have to fast forward emily needs to stop saying puns and singing and, and family her thing fucking family anyway uh kelly you're going first this week i am oh. but it's your wine <laughs> Don't we worry, already I talked got this. about a thing. I got. So I, I know like, we like. <laughs> and I skipped a thankful for, which is at the end of the podcast. Usually, you guys, we're coming up on a year of doing this very and I'm, soon, and I'm just completely breaking the mold on this episode. Okay, so yeah, we've been doing this for almost a year, and neither of us know how this works. But it's our podcast, so however we do it is the right way. Yeah, and you just have to love us for it. Anyway, uh, I picked the wine this week, and I picked New Age. It is uh, like 90% Tarantes and 10% Sauvignon Blanc. It's a white. And it's really cool because it says New Age on the front. But then the um, there's a painting of a woman with a really lovely yellow hat that's kind of uh, superimposed like on, on, on the, the back. inside of the back label. Yeah. So it comes through the bottle. It's real cool. Man, I should have taken a picture before we poured out a quarter of this bottle because now... Yeah, we didn't take a picture. Now it looks kind of weird because the wine magnifies the picture, but now it's like half small, half big. Like her hat looks way we'll fucked just tilt, up. We'll just tilt the bottle. I'm going to I'm gonna take it yep. from a sky view. Oh, shit. That Other looks way. worse. I think, you have to, no, I think you have to take it from a down view. There you go. Okay. We'll, we'll figure it we'll out. We'll figure it out. But anyway, I, I mean, I picked this because it has a painting of a lovely lady on it. She looks very sophisticated and artistic, so. Yeah. This is actually, uh, according to the back of the, the bottle, Argentina's most popular white mm. wine. It's a refreshing blend of 90% Tarantes and 10% Sauvignon Blanc, as I said. It has vibrant, fruity, and floral aromas of great intensity. Balanced acidity leads to soft, semi-sweet flavors. The slightly effervescent mouthfeel. Effervescent mouthfeel. God damn. They're, they're really getting into it. I really like that. That's lovely. They get style points for that one. Uh, makes this an extremely refreshing, vivacious, and sensual mm. wine, leaving you wanting more. That's my new this Tinder is like profile. like the sexy finger quotes of wine. Yeah. It, 
th- that's gonna be my tinder thing like extremely refreshing vivacious and sensual leaving you wanting more i like that she continuously talks about like a tinder profile but then she's also like and my happily happily like committed relationship yeah like i don't have tinder i never have i've been dating the same guy for four years so i yeah. have no and plans. i've been married slash dating long enough that i've never done internet dating like it wasn't a thing yeah which is weird to say but because i'm not that old if i ever do for whatever reason like maybe she has so many ideas i'm it's gonna say mouthfeel at least twice oh minimum guys hit me up on tinder if i ever have one just search mouthfeel (laughs) all right so uh what are we cheersing to i mean you being on new opportunities yeah cheers Clink. I'm like scared because I try to do it harder so our mics actually pick it up. But then I'm like, I'm gonna, one day I'm going to do it. And it's just like the glasses are just going to like shatter. Oh, my God. The only Soon tragedy. we will have like whining about history glasses. And then we need to be careful with them. Yes. Because I will be sad if they <laughs> We'll just perch them on a shelf in the back. Like we will never actually use We'll pour them. wine into it, take the picture, and then pour the, pour the wine into <laughs> other wine glasses. Into some like solo cups. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> no one will know. I actually I like this wine. It's um it's it has a got kick the, to it. Yeah. Like it's a some it's the acidity, like it has a kick to it, but it's really good. It's a good summer wine, even though we're in the dead of winter. You know what though? It's thirty degrees, so I'm breaking out the board shorts and the flip flops and Heck getting yeah. light with it. But yeah, it's, it kind of reminds me of some of the Moscatos and Rieslings we've had. Mm-hmm. It's it's not as like carbonated as those and mm-hmm. it's not as sweet, but it's I mean, in generally that... wine's not carbonated, but you know. Well, you know, well, you know how Moscatos kind of take, they're really bubbly. Yeah. Yeah. And this is, this is like a little, like a half a step down from a Moscato. I yeah, really and, like yeah, it. Yeah, it's not as sweet. It definitely still has some of the acidity in it. But, but it does really have those good. really like floral fruity tastes. Yeah. Like, I was gonna say the description on the bottle was very accurate. Yes, that effervescent mouthfeel. I need to go to the bathroom. I'll be back. Okay. All right. Well, Kelly, <laughs> you're starting, <laughs> and that's appropriate now. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um. So I'm covering Elizabeth Keckley. I've never heard of her. Pause for Emily's reaction, as I do. Um, One of these days, I'm going to be like, oh, yeah, I studied her in college, and I wrote three papers on her, and I know everything about her. Let me watch you fuck it up. (laughs) It's kind of like that one time where I, in my notes, I covered your woman, and then I just took her out so you could cover her, and so I was able to, like, add stuff in and be like, oh, I know what you're talking about. That was our uh, three trans trailblazers episode. We were celebrating Pride Month, and on the same episode, we decided to cover, I covered one trans woman, and Kelly covered like three, but she had It was basically, like, the first three women that had, like, surgery. Yeah, transitional uh, gender reassignment surgery. So, Yeah. It was funny. I was just like, I guess I'll just take this chunk of my notes out now. Yeah, but you you had stuff to add. I it did. was it was more of a conversation. Yeah, it was versus good. That, me it was a good episode. You. Yeah. So Elizabeth Keckley was born into slavery in February 1818 in Dinwiddie. I can't say that with a straight. Just it's funny. Who would fucking? I'm sure that was someone's name whose like ancestors were clearly either like the village idiots or hated them. Uh, I don't know. So she was born in the Dinwiddie County Courthouse in Dinwiddie, 
Virginia. You're trying so hard not to say dimwitty, <laughs> I and I am. appreciate um, your effort. Which is just south of Petersburg, Virginia, which I don't know where that is, but you know, people that live in oh, Virginia it's just south might. Of dimwitty. <laughs> no, it's just north of di- dimwitty. <laughs> um, so her mother was named Agnes, who was a house house. I can't talk. I've had too much wine. <laughs> who was a house slave, likely of mixed race, um, owned by planter. Armistead Burwell and his wife Mary. Can I just say so that little factoid about her mother likely being of mixed race but she's a slave probably means some plantation owner raped her mother and then then boom. And that's probably actually why she was a house slave because she was probably slightly lighter skin toned. Yeah. Um, So Aggie as um, people called her mother had learned to read and write, although it was illegal at the time for enslaved people. Yep, because denying you education helps keep you down. Right, exactly. It's a form of oppression. Um, Elizabeth did not learn of her father's identity until her mother was on her deathbed. Oh, shit. Um, And although Elizabeth's appearance suggested that she had considerably white ancestry, she is light, she didn't know, but it was confirmed by her mother that her father was um, Aggie's owner, Armistead Burwell. Fucking awful that you can just, like, um, rape your slaves. Well, and it... I never found out what their relationship was, like, if it was a true relationship or if... Here's the thing, though. It can't be because he owns her. Right. There, it, it eliminates any sense of... Right. Ability to consent but, because you're owning another human being. Exactly. As it's the whole you never know if you can actually say no without losing, you know, your job or your home or your safety. Or being murdered. Yeah, exactly. Safety. Or, I said safety. <laughs> um uh he she was permitted to marry, Aggie was, and he she married George Pleasant Hobbs, who was also a literate slave, um, who lived and worked in the neighbor's home around the time that Elizabeth was born. So he's working in the house, like, down the road. Yeah. Um, And unfortunately, George's owner decided to move and took George with him, and he had to leave behind Elizabeth and Agnes, which is sad. So Um, many families were torn apart through slavery. Right. Like, not even just death, but, yeah, people being sold to different owners or people moving. And, like, because there was no sense of you're actually married. Um, And they were never reunited. Um, Though Aggie and George corresponded for many years. And as an adult, Elizabeth noted, quote, the most precious mementos of my existence are the faded old letters that he wrote full of love and always hoping that the future would bring brighter days, end quote. Oh, Jesus. It's cute, though. Like, it's it's tragic, but it's cute. Oh, that's Maybe not heartbreaking. It's, but it's heartwarming, too, that, like, he was like, I love you. Like, yeah, we're apart, but I'm thinking of you. Yeah, and, but you knowing know, the it future didn't work will out. Bring, bring, <sighs> hey, he didn't say that the future will bring us back together. He said it'll be brighter days. Well, I mean, eventually it was. Slavery ended. So obviously, Elizabeth lived in the Burwell house with her mother and began official duties when she was four years old. Oh, yeah, because you trust a four-year-old with Jack anything. Uh, The Burwells had four children under the age of 10, and Elizabeth was assigned to be the nursemaid of their infant, Elizabeth Margaret. So they're both named Elizabeth. I'm sorry. 
A four-year-old is taking care of a baby. Yep. A four-year-old is a baby. I have worked with four-year-olds. Those fuckers don't know shit. Forced into responsibility while so young, Elizabeth, the person I'm actually talking about, was punished if she failed to care properly for the baby. One day, she actually accidentally tipped the cradle over too far, causing the infant to roll onto the floor, and Mary Burwell beat her severely. Okay, here's the thing. You said this name, and I had no idea who you were talking about. I know that story, though. Yeah. So I'm really excited now because I I think th- I think she was on a drunk history or something because this is super familiar. Or you maybe... and your drunk history. Just let me know as I keep oh, going. Oh, actually, no. I think it was uh, the Explorers podcast covered this woman. Now I kind of feel bad. But I haven't listened to that episode. So. Well, that's okay because you're not copying, and this is our own brand of wine-driven yeah, chaos. Right? It's fine. So at the age of 14, uh, or in 1832, you know, whichever sparks your fancy, Elizabeth was sent to live on on generous loan, finger quotes, to the eldest Burwell son, Robert, in Chesterfield County, Virginia. Again, near Petersburg, just you know, in a different direction. Okay. When he married Margaret Anna Robertson. He was technically Elizabeth's half-brother, although such relationships were seldom acknowledged. Just remember, as a side note, because yeah. we found out who her father was. The new bride expressed contempt for Elizabeth, perhaps because of her obvious white ancestry, and that made the older woman uneasy. There's, you know, a note that maybe even perhaps she kind of resembled her brother and, you know, maybe the wife Uh, noted that. I was going to say, I feel like everyone knew what was up except for the child. (laughs) Well, and I mean, by this time she did know, I think. Oh, because her her mother had died? died Oh, okay. So everyone knows. (laughs) Um, Margaret made life for Elizabeth unpleasant for the next four years that she was with them. The family moved to Hillsborough, North Carolina, um, where Robert became a minister and operated the Burwell School for Girls out of his house. Such a man of the cloth. <sighs> right. From 1837 slaves. to 1857. And Elizabeth mentioned that Margaret seemed, quote, desirous to wreak vengeance upon her. So, no, actually, she you're right. She didn't know at this time because her mother's still alive. Because my next line is Elizabeth wrote letters to her mother during this time. Okay. Margaret enlisted neighbor William J. Bingham to help subdue the slave girl's stubborn pride. When when Elizabeth was 18, Bingham called her to his quarters and ordered her to ordered her to undress so that he could beat her. Elizabeth refused, saying that she was fully grown and quote, "You shall not whip me unless you prove the stronger. Nobody has the right to whip me but my own master and nobody shall do so if I can prevent it." End quote. Damn Elizabeth. You tell him to go fuck himself. <laughs> uh, Bingham bound her hands and beat her, then sent her back to her master with bleeding welts on her back. The next week, Bingham flogged her again until he was exhausted. Again, Elizabeth was sent back to her master with bleeding welts upon her back. A week later, Bingham flogged her again until he was exhausted, while she she suppressed her tears and cries. The next week, after yet another attempt to, quote, break her, Br- Bingham had a change of heart, quote, bursting into tears and declaring that it would be a sin to beat her anymore. He asked for her forgiveness and said that he would not beat her again. Elizabeth claims that he kept his word. He's just sick of working out every night. Right. He's like, he I'm wants too, I'm to sit in front of the well, TV it was, it was and eat once chips. a week, but yeah. Still, he's like, this is fucking exhausting. Why am I doing this? I mean, like, I'm glad he stopped beating her, but what a fucking monster to be able to do that in the first place. Right. At the same time, 
Alexander M. Kirkland, a prominent white man of the community, forced a sexual relationship on Elizabeth for four years. So he raped her for four years. Of what she called, quote, suffering and deep mortification. In 1839, she bore Kirkland's son and named him George after her stepfather. Afterward, Elizabeth was returned to Virginia, where she served another member of the family, Anne Burwell, um, who was now Anne Burwell Garland and Garland's husband, Hugh A. Garland. Again, another half-sister. When the Garland family had financial difficulties, they sold some slave children and, quote, hired out others, collecting the fees of their wages. Elizabeth and her mother remained with with the mistress, Anne Garland, and her husband. Elizabeth's sewing helped support the family. After many moves, the Garlands moved to St. Louis, Missouri in 1847, taking Aggie and Elizabeth with them to tend the children and do all the family sewing. Nearly 12 years of living and working in St. Louis gave Elizabeth the chance to mingle with its large free black population. Wow. She was able able to establish connections with women in the white community, which she later drew, drew on as a free dressmaker. So we'll come back to that. Spoiler. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> Elizabeth met her future husband, James, in St. Louis, but refused to marry him until she and her son were free. Well, yeah, because otherwise it's right weird. How does that even work? Like... Like I, I don't I assume, know because I know that interracial it, it, it can happen. Yeah, and then you have to end up like buying their freedom, right? Because we had that That's in one of right. our other stories. That's right. Um, because uh, oh god, what was yep. her name? Elizabeth Jennings Graham. I think her father bought his wife's freedom right. because like he they was were already married free. And he, yeah, it was. Yeah, okay. Because yeah. I'm like, I know interracial relationships were not okay at the time, and those were super illegal. But I didn't know what the laws were on like whether you were free or enslaved and what how that whole thing goes down and like it because it's like you're marrying what they considered property it's like it's yeah it was a weird thing so she asked her master hugh a garland to free them and he refused she worked for two years to persuade him agreeing to purchase her own freedom and in 1852 he agreed to release her them both for twelve hundred dollars $1,200? Yes, $1,200. I just, I feel like even nowadays, for someone trying to, (laughs) oh God, that made me like throw up a little. (laughs) But uh, no, I I feel like even nowadays for a slave to earn $1,200 would be a feat. Yeah. Keckley, or Elizabeth, also known as Keckley, I guess. I, I, it's Elizabeth when I write, Keckley, right? When I write my notes, a lot of times I'll just keep the verbiage from wherever I got it from because I'll be like reading and then typing my notes as I go. And a lot of times they refer to them there as like her last name. And sometimes I forget to change it. I know that's like the journalistic idea. It we always me. We always try to refer to these women by their first names just because we feel a more personal connection that way. Yes. So Elizabeth considered going to New York to try to, quote, appeal to the benevolence of the people, end quote. According to her patroness, Elizabeth Le, Le Bourget said, quote, it would be a shame to allow you to go north to beg for what we should give you, end quote. With her patron's help, because remember she was a dressmaker, mm-hmm. she collected the money to buy her and her son's freedom and was man- manumitted in November 1855. Wow. So that's good. That's great that she was able to make those connections and, you know, get into I the dressmaking I mean, it still took her three years. Well, yeah. I, I wonder but, I mean, what that's... that is in today's money, because that's got to be an astronomical be amount. She stayed in St. Louis until she had earned enough enough to repay her patrons, as she promised. Aww. 
Elizabeth worked hard in her business as well as in her personal life, and she enrolled her son in the newly established Wilberforce University in Ohio. She also planned to leave St. Louis and James Keckley. Oh, her husband? Yep. Wasn't working out? Apparently not. Okay. That's fine. Relationships right. end. Um, in early 1860, she and her son moved to Baltimore, Maryland. She intended to run classes for young, quote, colored women to teach her system of cutting and fitting dresses. But after six weeks, she had hardly enough money to get to Washington, D.C., which she thought might offer better chances for work. At the time, Maryland was passing many repressive laws against free blacks. Oh, boo. In the mid-1860s, Elizabeth intended to work as a seamstress in Washington, but lacked the money to pay the required license as a free black to remain in the city for more than 30 days. Because apparently that was a thing. Wait, so she had to, like, pay... It's almost like a visa? Yeah. To work in Washington. She appealed to one of her patrons, and one of them, a woman by the name of Miss Ringold, used her connection to Mayor James G. Barrett to petition for a license for Elizabeth. Um, She was granted it and free of charge. Great. I, her patrons are stepping the fuck up. Like, right. she must she be must making do, amazing be dresses. Good. They're like, I need her to be making dresses and nothing can get in her way because I need to look fab. Right. Elizabeth worked to establish clients and gain enough work to support herself. Commissions for dresses were steadily coming in, but a dress that she completed for Miss Robert E. Lee sparked the business's rapid, rapid growth. Oh, I know that name. Yep. He was the Union Army General. Yes. Elizabeth eventually became Verena Davis's favored family stream seamstress. I don't know who that is. Um, and she found most of her work with society women by word of mouth recommendations. Because that was huge back then. Oh, there was no social media. There was no billboards. There was just, if you do a good job, people are going to talk about it. Because you, you, can't, you can't go into Target and buy a dress. You have to find someone to make it for you. Yeah, Exactly. So Margaret McLean of Maryland, introduced to her by Verena Davis, requested a dress from Elizabeth and said she needed it urgently. Elizabeth declined as she had heavy order commitments. However, Margaret came back and offered to introduce Keckley to, quote, the people in the White House, end quote. In this case, that would be the newly elected President Abraham Lincoln and his wife, Mary Todd. I know those names, too. Um, (laughs) Elizabeth... uh, Decided, yeah, I'm going to make this dress and finish the dress Who then arranged uh, for McLean, who then arranged the meeting the following week for, with Mary Todd. Damn. Elizabeth met Mary Todd Lincoln on March 4th, 1861, or the day of Abraham Lincoln's first inauguration. Gee, man, Mary Todd's has a, having a busy day. She's like, so my, presence, my husband's going to become president, and then I got to meet with the dressmaker, right. and I got to redecorate the White House because, Jesus, it looks dated. Right. <laughs> As she was preparing for the day's events, Mrs. Lincoln asked Elizabeth to return the next day for an interview. When she arrived, Elizabeth found other women there to be interviewed as well. But Mrs. Lincoln chose her as her personal modiste, which I think is seamstress. In addition to in addition to dressmaking for Mary Todd, Elizabeth also assisted her each day as her personal dresser. She helped Mrs. Lincoln prepare for official receptions and other social events. For the next six years, Elizabeth became an intimate witness to the private life of the first family. Jeez. Known for her love of fashion, the first lady kept Elizabeth busy maintaining and creating new pieces for her extensive wardrobe. During the Lincoln administration and many years afterward, Elizabeth was the sole designer and creator of Mary Todd Lincoln's event wardrobe. 
In January 1862, Mrs. Lincoln went for photos to Brady's Washington Photography Studio, where she had images taken while wearing two of Elizabeth's gowns. For several years to come, she wore Elizabeth's dresses to many official events and had many portraits taken while wearing her work. So what I'm taking from this is most of the photos you see of Mary Todd Lincoln are probably in Elizabeth's dresses. Elizabeth's dresses. Good God. I... That's such a big deal, especially because like the the image of the president and the first lady weren't very widely available right. up until recently. Exactly. At this time. And for to see her, it's like, wow, okay, that dress was made by a former slave who was hustling in Washington, DC and had right. bought like her a freedom. Lady boss. Good God. Right. So, during this time, Elizabeth also founded the Contraband Relief Association, or the CRA, in 1862, receiving donations from both Lincolns, as well as other white patrons and well-to-do free blacks. The organization changed its name in 1864 to Ladies, Freedmen, and Soldiers Relief Association to, quote, reflect its expanded mission after blacks uh, started serving in the United States Colored Troops. The CRA provided food, shelter, clothing, and emotional support to recently freed slaves and or sick and wounded soldiers. The organization was based in Washington, D.C., but the funds distributed the, the funds distributed and the services provided helped families in larger regions. And this is during the American Civil War, correct? Yes. It, it must be because I think that was the first time colored they had their own regiments. Yeah. Bl- yeah. Black people like, had their own. I Did black people fight in the Revolutionary War? I I feel, I feel like, like they, they did. did, but it it wasn't I know very some common. of them fought for the South, but that was because they like well, were forced to not in the Revolutionary or War or not. Revolutionary. <laughs> well, I mean, they might have fought for the South. I mean, the whole the whole the, thing, the whole thing. <laughs> the whole kit um, and caboodle. But yeah, I don't think it was very common. Yeah, the Contraband Relief Association um, became lost to history, but it set but it set the standards and because sh- I've never heard of it. Yeah. It set the standards and showed the need for relief organizations to provide aid to the poor and displaced black community. The work of the, the association within the black community helped create black autonomy through intra, intra-ethnic associ- networking. The association created an organization by and for African-Americans. Well, and that was uh, kind of what Elizabeth had done up until this point. She was networking with wealthy white people who supported her. Exactly. They bought dresses, but then they also helped her buy her freedom and even right. helped her be able to operate in Washington, connected, with, connected her with the White House. I know. Like, it's amazing. Well, and it's kind of uh, going back to Shirley Chisholm, where she's like, white people can't make it on their own. Black people can't make it on their own. We need to work together. And it's that uh, cooperation. Yeah, exactly. Elizabeth wrote about the contrabands in Washington, D.C. in her autobiography. She said that ex-slaves were not going to find, quote, flowery paths, days of perpetual sunshine, and bowers hanging with golden fruit in Washington, D.C., but that, quote, the road was rugged and full of thorns, end quote, which is good. Like, you know, don't tell them that it's going to be this place that you come north and it's all going to be, you know, rainbows and puppy dogs because it's not. Right. I mean, I can imagine compared to slavery, it's probably a lot better. Right. <laughs> like, like shit looks pretty good if you've been in deep, deep, deep shit. Yeah, exactly. She saw that, quote, their appeal for help was too often answered by cold neglect, end quote. Yeah. Well, there, there. It was like, hey, you're free, but we're you're on your own now. We're exactly. not going to help you. And we're not going to acknowledge all the damage that ages of slavery has done to your communities and exactly. your families. And uh. 
One summer evening, Elizabeth witnessed, quote, a festival given for the benefit of the sick and wounded soldiers in the city, end quote, which was white organized. She thought the free blacks could do something similar to benefit the poor and suggested to her colored friends, a quote, a society of colored people to be formed to labor for the benefit of the unfortunate freedman, end quote. So this is kind of how she got the idea for the CRA. Okay. The CRA used independent black churches for meetings and events such as the 12th Baptist Church and the 15th Street Presbyterian Church, among others. The organization held fundraisers with concerts and speeches, dramatic readings, and festivals. Prominent black figures who spoke on behalf of the organization included Frederick Douglass, Henry Highland Garlett, J. Sella Martin, as well as prominent white figures such as Wendell Phillips. I knew one of those names. Yep. I knew Frederick Douglass. Yep. He's a big deal. <laughs> the CRA's receipts were $838.68 in the first year and $1,228.43 in the second year. And that's how much it cost uh, for Elizabeth to buy her freedom about. Yeah, right. The second year. Yeah. And that was a fundraising event. So that just shows you how much money yeah. that she was given by her patrons that she did have to pay them back. Exactly. Like. 5,150 articles of clothing have been received during those two years. The CRA affirmed in its first annual report that every effort made by us to obtain funds to alleviate in any way the distresses of our afflicted brethren have been crowned with success. Out of the $838.68, approximately 600 of it was given by and raised by black-run or predominantly black organization, such as the Freedmen's Relief Association, Fugitive Aid Society, and the Waiters of Metropolitan Hotel, and the Young Misses of Baltimore. The CRA distributed clothes, food, and shelter among the freedmen and sent funds to many. Jean Fagan Yellen notes that the CRA sent $50 to the sick and wounded soldiers at Alexandria, Virginia. They also hosted Christmas dinners for the sick, sick and wounded soldiers and distributed food to other organizations. The organization helped to place African-American teachers in newly built schools for blacks. Mm. And the entire community recognized and valued and thanked, quote, the officers and members of the association for their kindness and attentive duties to the sick and wounded. Even though this society would become overlooked in history. That's a bummer. Yeah, right. Well, I mean, that's our whole deal. You know, hey, why isn't this person, you know, known in history? So, when Elizabeth had begun working at the White House, the Lincolns had two young children, William and Tad. Mm -hmm. She sometimes was given the domestic duty of looking after the children, um, such as during periods of sickness. Elizabeth was a source of strength and comfort for the Lincolns when Willie died. Her own son, George, who was more than three quarters white, enlisted in the Union Army in 1861 and was killed in August of 1861. Damn it. Just seven months before Willie died. So she, you know, she had that commonality to kind of She's going through a period of mourning her own child and then Mary Todd Lincoln. I would imagine they would have grown pretty close over the years. As you said, she worked for her for six years. And this is just one more thing that, you know, they had this commonality, this terrible, terrible commonality. Here's the other thing. Mary Todd Lincoln... Her life is really tragic because she lost her kid, at least one. I think she might have lost both of them. And then then her her husband. Her her husband was assassinated before her eyes. It wasn't even like she heard about it later. Like it happened in front of her. And like 
there there are stories of her getting a little a little loony and a little out there and oh, I'm like more of that come, there's more about Mary Todd <laughs> in my story but for but also Elizabeth has a very traumatic past and I'm sure she was you know like I get you. I get you, girl. We got this. Right. It sucks. <laughs> so after her son died, she struggled to establish her son's racial identity to try and get pension to help her. Because like, he was three quarters white. Right. But what did did black soldiers not get any pension? Or was um, she trying to get know. a white it, pension? It didn't say. It just said after difficulties in establishing her son's racial identity. Which is, again, like being shitty about um, mixed race kids. And that's right. a whole other Elizabeth conversation. Elizabeth did gain a pension as his survivor. It was $8 a month, later raised to 12 for the remainder of her life. Yep. That sounds like, even yeah. back then, that sounds like absolutely right. nothing. Yeah, exactly. Elizabeth comforted the First Lady after President Lincoln's assassination when, when Mary Todd became secluded, allowing only a few people into her quarters. Mm-hmm. Um, she found her in a critically delicate state, and Elizabeth stood by her to give her comfort. Um, at the time, Mary Todd gave away many of her husband's personal items to people close to her, including Elizabeth. Elizabeth acquired Mary Mary Todd's blood-splattered cloak and bonnet from the night of the assassination. Holy shit! As, as well as some of the president's personal grooming items. I don't know if I'd want that. What a... I mean, what an incredible thing to give. So Jackie Kennedy, wife of uh, JFK, who was assassinated. He was one of her presidents. Mm-hmm. He, assass- he was assassinated. He assassinated. No. But she was in this very iconic little pink. Um, she had the pillbox hat yeah, and then the pink it's, dress. Yeah. And it's Anyone like, who sees it is like, oh, I know that right. dress. I keep thinking I'm talking to our international listeners because I just imagine how frustrating it no, would they be might that we, re- yeah. we refer to something and they're like, the fuck are you talking about? But her dress is actually on lockdown. And I think it 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 uh, was donated to the Smithsonian. Yeah, is it in a museum? Well, it's not. So it was donated in 2003 and it was not to be held on display for 100 years. So, 100 years from 2003, 2103, am I doing math? It's just in their vault. (laughs) And part of it was that I I don't think that uh, the family wanted anyone who would have been there remembered to be alive. And so, they're like, 100 years is a pretty decent timeline. Everyone's going to be dead. But because she wore that blood-stained outfit when the vice president was inaugurated as the actual president because she said no i want them to see what they've done oh wow i want them to see what has happened so that is also like a very iconic presidential yeah. assassination wife outfit like that's a thing i guess apparently oh my god but yeah what yep. a meaningful i yeah it's a very that's a very personal thing oh, yeah. Jesus. Uh, Mary Todd insisted that Elizabeth accompany her to Chicago to assist her in her new life and a myriad of affairs, you know, obviously once she left the White House. Roughly one month after the assassination, Elizabeth boarded a train with Mary Todd and the family en route to Chicago. She spent about three weeks with Mary Todd as she needed to return to the Capitol to take care of her business. Like, obviously, she's like, I'm not your slave. You're you're not the not, first lady obvious, anymore. Obvious, and obviously, like... Mary Todd asked her like it wasn't like you need to like she like it was a, a thing between friends yeah but she's like you know okay I've been here three weeks I have to go back to my business 
Yeah, because she's not getting paid to hang out with Mary Todd. Exactly. Mary Todd grew more dependent on Elizabeth, writing her frequently, asking for visits, and lamenting her new conditions. This period period was critical to their later friendship. I was going to say, Mary Todd is, like, this is a friendship. This isn't just you're working for me. And she's deeply, even more now because she's lost everything, she's deeply relying on Elizabeth for that emotional support. Oh, my God. In 1867, Mary Todd, who was deeply in debt because of extravagant spending, wrote to Elizabeth asking for help in disposing of articles of value, such Mm -hmm. as old clothes, by accompanying her to New York to find a broker to handle the sales. In late September, they arrived in New York, where Mary Todd used an alias for the duration of her visit. Elizabeth attempted to help by giving interviews to papers sympathetic to Mary Todd's plight and wrote letters to friends like Frederick Douglass and Harry Highland Garnett, a highly respected minister in the black church community. The fundraising effort became publicly known, and Mary Todd was severely criticized for selling clothes and other items associated with her husband's presidency. Well, what the hell else is she going to do? Right. Fuck you guys. She has lost everything. She can kind of do whatever she wants at this point. Unless you're going to pay her to put it in a museum or something. Screw you. Right. Elizabeth also donated, or Elizabeth ended up donating her Lincoln memorabilia to Wilberforce College for its sale and fundraising to rebuild after a fire in 1865. However, Mary Todd became very angry at her action. So Elizabeth changed her original intention to have the articles publicly displayed for fees in Europe. Okay. So it's like, okay, fine. You can't sell it, but, you know, do this other thing so you can still get the money you need to rebuild your school. Yeah. And I mean, I I guess Mary Todd doesn't really have, like, the right to, like, she, it's a gift. You can do whatever you want right. with it. But I understand this is a friendship. It's an emotional connection. Right. If you gave me something, okay. I gave you that extra planner I had. And you asked me, hey, do you know anyone else who can use it? I'm not really using it. I'm like, you do whatever you want with it. It's not my problem anymore. The publicity and criticism of Mary Todd strained their relationship. They did remain in contact, but they definitely weren't as close before as before. In 1868, Elizabeth published a novel called Behind the Scenes in an attempt to place Mrs. Lincoln in a better light before the world. And to, quote, explain the motives that guided Mary Todd's decision regarding what later became known as the old clothes scandal. Shut yep. up. Good God. It's like the, the Obama tan suit bullshit. Like, come she on. She gained the help of James Redpath, an editor from New York and friend of Frederick Douglass to help her edit and publish her book. Elizabeth described her own rise from slavery to life as a middle class businesswoman who employed staff to help complete her projects. She was claiming a part in the educated mixed race middle class of the black community. She emphasized her ability to overcome difficulties and the development of her business sense while acknowledging the brutalities under slavery and the sexual abuse that led to the birth of her son, George. Yeah. Um, However, she spent very little time on the book on those events. Um, This was in contrast to a lot of other slave narratives in which um, that was the majority of the book, like. Um, she essentially veiled her own past while using alternating chapter chapters to contrast her life with Mary Todd Lincoln to unveil the former first lady. Right. Um, Elizabeth wrote about the Lincolns in a style near hagiography, which is kind of like how people write about saints, like idolization. So she's writing okay. about Abraham particularly. As like um, a as pious. Like, yeah. High a regard, higher- you know. 
He's saintly. He's the best, you yep. guys. Let me tell you. It's like how I talk about you. Let me tell you about Kelly. Hmm. She's like so fucking amazing. I like that you had to use your drunk voice. And nothing can ever stop. Because I, I usually don't rant to people about how amazing. I'm that kind of drunk. When I get drunk, I'm like, let me tell you how amazing you are. Because you right. have no She's fucking idea. I love idea. you, drunk. I'm the I same way. I love you so much. I want to like crawl inside your brain and just live there because you're a fucking fantastic right um so that's how she wrote about him but she wrote about her with like a cool analytical eye like kind of trying to like help people understand yeah it's like hey guys losing your children then seeing your husband assassinated in front of you will fuck you up maybe don't be assholes advertisements labeled the book as a literary thunderbolt and the publisher carlton and company joined in by declaring it it as a quote Great sensational disclosure. And the editor even included letters from Mary Todd to Elizabeth in the book. And the seamstress was strongly criticized for violating Mary Todd's privacy. At the t- so this is why she was so strongly criticized. This is like a little background. At the time when the white middle class struggled over what is known as, quote, genteel performance, Elizabeth unveiled a white woman by the very title of her book, showing what went on behind the public scenes and revealing, quote, private domestic information involving primarily white women, end quote. So it was very, you know, it was very Victorian, like everybody had their outer facing self and then right. everybody had their private self. And you don't well, and it you was, don't reveal the private. Self. It was the two spheres. It was the public sphere and the private exactly. sphere. OK, here's the other thing, though. It's like. Do you think women just like leave their house in their hoop skirts with their right, hair exactly. did up? Like, I woke up like this. Hashtag no makeup selfie. Like, fuck you. <laughs> um, we all know. So the Lincolns had been subject to criticism um, as Westerners early in his presidency. Like, they suffered a lot of flack when he first became president. Yeah. And Mary Todd's anxiety about it um, led her to try to dress right and conduct herself really well at the White House. Obviously. Critics such as Carolyn Ceresio have identified Elizabeth's unveiling of, of, of Lincoln as the reason that the book generated such backlash. A reviewer from the Cleveland Daily Plain Dealer declared that they were pleased that Elizabeth's book was published as it would serve as a warning, quote, to those ladies whose husbands may be elevated to the position of president of the United States, not to put on airs and attempt to appear what their educated education, their habits of life and social position, and even personal appearance would not warrant, end quote. So basically they're saying don't be something you're not. Yeah, but they're saying it in such a shitty yeah, way. They're like, if you're ugly and uneducated, don't pretend you're like worth human life. Um, by writing about Lincoln, Elizabeth transgre- transgressed the law of tact. Her relationship with Lincoln was ambiguous as it drew both from her work as an employee and the friendship that they had developed, which did not meet the rules of gen- gentility. Okay. People- it was like, we don't talk about right. what happens behind closed doors. People felt as if Elizabeth, an African-American and former slave, had transgressed the boundaries that the middle class tried to maintain between public and private life. Yeah, and she stepped outside her station being a black woman and a former slave. I'm I'm sure if, like, it was a white servant or even, like, a personal friend who was maybe on Mary Todd's social level, it wouldn't have been as big of a deal. Jennifer Flishner writes of the reaction to Keckley's book. So this is someone talking about the reaction. Yeah. So Lizzie, Elizabeth. Lizzie's intention, like the spelling of her name, would thereafter be lost to history. At the age of 50, she had she had violated Victorian codes, not only of friendship and privacy, but of race, gender, and class. 
Not surprisingly, the newspapers that attacked Mary Lincoln in the fall in the spring now leapt to her defense. The social threat represented by this black woman's agency also provoked other readers, and someone produced an ugly and viciously racist, 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 sorry, racist parody <laughs> called Behind the Seams by a word I'm not going to say woman who took work from in from Mrs. Lincoln and Mrs. Davis and signed with an X the mark of Betsy Kickley and the word I'm not going to say again, denoting its supposed author's illiteracy. So, so that they're basically the- like saying she's this illiterate slave. Yeah. And like, oh, you're taking advantage of the people who were kind enough exactly. to allow you to exist. Exactly. Fuck that. Stunned and dismayed by the negative. Remember, this is someone talking about yeah. it. Stunned and dismayed by the negative publicity, Elizabeth wrote letters to newspaper editors and defended her serious intentions, which was part of the model of gentility. Because remember, she did it as a like, no, I want you guys to see why she's selling her clothes. Like, you shouldn't be upset with her. You know, like, yeah. she, she did it to be kind and it just completely was you know because she dumb. was a black woman the uproar <laughs> over the book subsided and it didn't but the book didn't sell well obviously which is insane because i bet that story that book is such a historical uh treasure nowadays to get that insight right from that perspective invaluable yeah the writer or jennifer flishner uh, also suggests that mary todd's son robert uh, was perpetually embarrassed by his mother's behavior and because he's the one that would later commit Mary Todd to asylum. Oh, so he did live. Yep. Okay. Um, and he did not want the public to know such intimate details um, as appeared in the memoir. So he may have been involved in suppressing the sale and distribution of it. Well, let's... We can unpack this. So it's not just the element of a, a former slave, a black woman talking about the p- former president and first lady. Right. and But it's a look into but, someone's private life which was not a thing right so it's it's uh there's the sexist and racial issues there's the uh victorian Victorian sensibilities but also she's talking about mental illness mary todd lincoln had depression maybe probably ptsd she had a whole mess of stuff going on that the world was not capable of helping her with like and actively demonized her for yeah and so she it, it's not even just a gender and racial issue this is about mental health and yeah we don't talk about that you don't talk about that yeah so remember that next time you're posting about like we've you're gotten depressed we've like, gotten better at talking about yeah. it but we're still not 100 percent there yeah but like us being able to talk openly about depression anxiety ptsd everything under the sun like on social right. media He'd and be in thankful TED talks, we're allowed to god it used to be like you cannot and you will be fucked up yeah. so, bad so bad for it you'll be committed and you'll die in some yeah. shitty hospital you'll never get being out of the asylum abused. ever again yeah good god so, aftermath of the book um, Mary Todd felt betrayed and extremely disturbed by the work's public disclo- disclosure of private lo- private conversations and particularly the letters that she wrote to Elizabeth. Oh. However, Elizabeth explained that she too had been betrayed as James Redpath violated her trust by printing the letters after he had asked her to lend them to him and promised not to disclose them and had never gained her consent to pu- for publication oh, of so the he's, letters. He's getting tabloidy. Yep. Fuck him. Fuck you, James. Um, the at this point at this time, the now destitute former lady permanently severed contact with Elizabeth. 
Oh no! Yeah, so that's sad. Oh, and she was just trying to help. She's like, guys, she's a human being. Like, you don't understand what she's yeah. going through. Let me help you understand. We don't talk about mental health, and you're a black woman, and we don't want to hear it from you, especially. Right, exactly. Ugh. Elizabeth continued to attempt to earn money by sewing and teaching young women her techniques. But much of her white clientele stopped calling. Oh, fuck. Eventually, she was in great need of money. And in 1890, when she was 72, she made a drastic decision to sell the Lincoln articles that she had, that she had kept for 35 years. Oh, my God. She sold 26 articles for $250. But it, it says, but it is unknown how much she received from the transactions. So, so she may not have may even not gotten, have gotten, gotten the full the 250 yeah. In the following years, she moved frequently, but in 1892, she was offered a faculty position at Wilberforce University. Remember, that was the one she I was going to say, they fucking better give her something because she put her neck <laughs> right. on the line for those assholes. Um, so they offered her the position of the head of, of the Department of Sewing and Domestic Science Arts. So she moved to Ohio to accept it. Within a year, she organized a dress exhibit at the Chicago World's Fair. And by the late 1890s, she returned to Washington, where she lived in the national home of for destitute colored women and children. No, she was doing better for like five seconds. Damn it. Which was an institution established in part by funds contributed by the Contraband Association that she had founded earlier. Are you fucking kidding Um, me? What is happening? They assume that she moved back. And into this house be- for health reasons. Okay, so um, so her health is failing. It's not that she's maybe super poor and the world has turned its back on her? Right. Okay. In her later years, Elizabeth led a very quiet and secluded life. She suffered from headaches and crying spells, much as some people say Mary Todd Lincoln also did. Well, she's probably also got some right. PTSD because she was regularly beaten and raped. So... She she also hung the first lady's photograph on her wall and told friends that Mary Todd had contacted her and they become they became reconciled sometime after her book's publication. Aww. But yeah. no one really knows if that's true or not. So. Herstory headcanon, it's true. They Herstory cried headcanon, over ice yeah. cream. And headcanon, they, they uh, 100% became friends again. <laughs> In May 1907, Elizabeth died as a resident of the National Home. Um, and was interred at Columbia Harmony Cemetery. In 1960, her remains were transferred to National Harmony Memorial Park when the Columbian Harmony closed and the land was sold. God, that's... I don't like when they sell cemeteries. Uh, I know. A historic plaque was installed across the street from the site of the former home commemorates her life. Jennifer Flesher, the the one that I had the quote from before, wrote, Perhaps the most poignant illustration of the different fates of these two women is found in their final resting places. While Mary Lincoln lies buried in Springfield in a vault with her husband and sons, Elizabeth Elizabeth Keckley's remains have disappeared. I'm sorry, what? In the 1960s, a developer paved over the Harmony Cemetery in Washington where Lizzie was buried, and when the graves were moved to a new cemetery, her unclaimed remains were placed in an unmarked grave, like those of her mother, slave father, and son. (laughs) That's disgusting. I'm just, I'm completely taken aback. Oh my god. God, that's so <laughs> uh, legacy. Uh, no, no, I'm done. I'm fucking so done. <laughs> the dress that Elizabeth designed for Mary Todd to wear at her husband's second inauguration um, and reception is held by the Smithsonian American History Museum. 
Elizabeth designed a quilt made from scraps of materials left over from dresses she made for Mrs. Lincoln, and that is held at the Kent State University Museum, which is cool. Cool. Um, the former school of Hills in Hillsboro, North Carolina, where Elizabeth worked for Reverend Robert Burwell, is now owned and operated as a house museum, the Burwell School Historic Site, even though that guy was an asshole. Um... And potentially her dad. Or no, that's the brother. That's the half-brother. Its website discusses Elizabeth's life and times. So that's cool. Like, they, they actually, like, talk about her and not yeah. just the white people. On December 12th, 2018, the New York Times published an obituary for Elizabeth as part of their overlooked series of stories of remarkable individuals. We've talked about tons. Went unreported. Yeah. Good. So... Oh my yeah, god! Yeah, that ended on a real sad note. Oh my, that story was. How is this not a movie? How know. is this not a movie? It has everything. Oh my god, that was incredible. Okay, so first of all, Kelly, you and I had been talking about two presidential dressmakers who had escaped right, from slavery. We were like trying to figure out if they were the same person or not. It, they were. Okay. So that was definitely the person I was thinking of because the Explorers podcast covered her along with Harriet Tubman, I think in the same episode or maybe it was a two-parter. But oh my God. I'm so glad I got to hear that more. And like I did hear it in the Explorers podcast, but it's interspliced with Harriet Tubman. It's been a while since I listened to it, so I didn't remember a lot of those facts, or maybe some of them weren't included. What a fucking tragedy, though. And like I so I grew up in Illinois, and as part of a school field trip, we took a visit to Springfield, the capital. Yeah, I've been to Springfield. And we we saw, you know, the Lincoln tomb and all that, and Mary Todd's there, and I think some other people might be there. I can't remember now because I was but <laughs> yeah and but to to it's insane i've got this like very passive memory of that in my head and then to imagine that there's some concrete floor under which elizabeth is lying no because she, she, she did get moved right but to the they, other ce- cemetery she's right. just she got moved into an unmarked grave so you can't okay. find her in the cemetery so she but in she like did a, get moved to a different cemetery so she's in like a patch of grass yeah Probably, or in a grave that says, you know, mass graves. We can't just, like, stick a sign there for 10... We really should. Yeah, like, hey... We're gonna go, we're gonna make a sign and just stick it in the grass. BT Dubs, guys, this is a mass grave, and in it is Deaf Elizabeth, and she's amazing, and you should all know about her. how I found her was because my grandma was telling me about books she's read recently, Um, and she told me about a book called Mrs. Lincoln's Dressmaker. Which is, it's technically, it's like, she she uses a lot, the person who wrote it, Jennifer Chiverini, uses a lot of, like, historical stuff. She does add, like, a little bit of fiction, but it's, like, she talks about how she actually used, like, the letters they wrote to each other and the book that um, Elizabeth wrote. So it's, it's, like, mainly history with just a tiny bit of you, fiction. You, you fill in the blanks and you embellish where it's necessary. Right. And so I haven't read it yet because it's twelve ninety nine on Kindle and I'm kind of like, eh, that's a lot of money. You know, this uh, is a great time to talk about our Patreon. Yeah. Right. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Um, but so that's how I heard about her. And then I went like I did my own research and yeah. So that's kind of funny that we that's both ended incredible. up at the same dressmaker. We almost fucked that up super bad too. 
That would have been Because I was convinced we were not thinking of the same person. Right? I was like, oh my God, you have a black presidential dressmaker? I have a black presidential dressmaker. What a coinkadink. They're right. totally different, though. Holy cow. Thank you for sharing that. I think that's a very important story. And and to think that yeah, during hope, I hope the American your story is more it is. uplifting. It is. But to think that uh, during the American Civil War, the person who was making and the dresses for and dressing Mary Todd Lincoln for nearly every occasion was a black was woman. a fr- was a black woman who Freed bought her slave. freedom yeah. after experiencing the horrors of slavery. Like, yeah, that's insane. That's if you made that up, people would say you're being fucking heavy handed. Right? <laughs> They'd be All like, right. you know, that that that's a bit much. Just yeah, let's scale it back a, a step or like seven. Yep. So uh, today I am covering Eunice Carter, and I found her on Instagram. Someone pu- there's a book about her, mm-hmm. and someone published about so it. We, and I read we, the we talk about we find books, and then we're like, let's cover the person this book covers. Yeah, well, I don't have time to read the whole fucking book to prepare for an know, episode. But now we have books that we have to read. We to do prepare for the episodes. We do. But so there's a book about her, and I basically read yep. the caption description. I was like. This lady's fucking you. awesome. Which is basically what I did is that I read like <laughs> about the dressmaker and I was like, oh, I need to. You this know. is happening. She has chosen me to share this story just not gonna at buy this the time. $12.99 book. Maybe someday. Cheap. Your birthday's coming up. It is. We got this. Yeah. Your, like our, your birthday's coming up before mine. It is. It is. What do you want? Oh, God. World peace. Just uh, five star reviews on five star iTunes. reviews on <laughs> iTunes. Maybe something that's a little more attainable and realistic. Right, that's what we both want for our birthdays. Yeah, spread our podcast to the world. Please do. Here's the thing: we have we have some listeners who are really into it, and they've shared it with friends who then also enjoy it. Like, right. and that makes me feel really happy. It's so not you, just you shout out to your people in Sullen Tuna, Sweden. Start <laughs> spreading that shit around those Scandinavia countries. We've got some Canadian listeners, like guys. You know, don't be afraid to be rude. Share that shit. Yeah. Spread the herstory love. Oh, my God. I've become such a fucking herstory nerd. We I had. I, yeah, I, had I a, saw your post about that. Yeah. You're like when you go out for drinks and talk about herstory. It helps because my boss is a huge history oh, buff God. and he writes history books. Oh, and he God. actually wrote one that I've been like. I've been pussyfooting around being like, maybe I can like give you a shout out on the podcast. But it's weird to ask that. But it's basically it's a it's a book about um, swimming, in, you know, early swimming and swimming costumes. And like I was like, that's crazy because I cover Gertrude Ederly and we like got into a whole conversation about it one time. And there's another woman I want to cover and it's totally in his book. Yeah. You just like, like oh hey, 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 hey. I don't know how I'm. Social anxiety, it's a thing, especially when it's your boss. Like, he's really right. nice. I'm not, like, scared of him, but, but I it's have like a how, typical... How, yeah, like, well, and plus it's, like, technically that's an outside of work thing. So, like, where does the line cross? Right. And, yeah. Well, and here's the other thing. Uh, I'm that person that whenever, you're, like, my boss calls me into his office, I'm like... Oh, I'm like, I'm getting fired. I'm getting fired. Yep. This is it. I am not prepared for this. And it's never happened. It's literally never happened. But I'm always like, this is it. This is the end, my friend. (laughs) Anyway, I am covering Eunice Carter. I'm very excited to share her story with you because Kelly and I are uh, like amateur true crime buffs. We're both super into it. That's one of the ways we bonded. And this has a delightful true crime tie-in. That's not super depressing. Oh, that's good. You know, 
It's a thing. Mildly depressing. Yeah. So uh, Eunice was born in Atlanta, Georgia on July 16th, 1899. She was born into quite an impressive family. So Eunice's paternal grandfather was born into slavery and bought his freedom before the outbreak of the American Civil War. Her father, William, was college educated. So like right away, like I'm in college. My, My father was a slave. I'm in college. So he was college educated and founded the black division of the YMCA. Her mother, Addie, was a college-educated social worker who was active in the NAACP, YMCA, and was one of the two women who were specially chosen to visit France during World War I to check on the condition of black servicemen. Wow. Fucking doing it all. They are amazing human beings. Right. Like absolutely crazy and then her brother William Jr. was an author and activist who promoted the pan-African identity which was meant to unify all peoples of African descent so it's like you know it's not about Nigeria you know I've actually heard about that like the pan-African identity see I had to look it up because I was like what is that exactly but yeah it's basically like hey we're all in this together it's a united African descent basically Well, and especially specifically talking about slavery, your your heritage, your identity, your country of origin is likely lost to you. You have no idea unless somehow people were able to pass that down orally. Right. So it's like, hey, we lost our heritage. Let's all just get together and like create our own. We know where we're generally from. Let's (laughs) just run with that. So Eunice is coming from a highly educated, high-achieving family who also instilled a strong sense of duty and justice right? in like, her. Right? Like, talk about some big shoes to step into. Jesus. Right? I'm sure she steps up. Unfortunately, well, don't we start the story. Yeah. So unfortunately, all of this like education, high achievement didn't keep uh, the lashes of racism at bay. Oh, though Eunice yeah. grew up in Atlanta, her family fled to Brooklyn, New York after the 1906 Atlanta race riots, which, as we've discussed, uh, riots, race riots aren't usually actually riots. It's like white people murdering a bunch of black people. And that's what this was. And I mm-hmm. wrote, which weren't so much riots as ma- a massive white mob murdering black people for two days. Yeah, it was. If you want to read something real depressing and like terror, it was like a purge in a city. It was real bad. Well, and we have there's the bloody summer of 1990. There are so many. This was not an isolated incident. This no. happened everywhere. Exactly. And it, it's it's terrible. It's 50 shades of fucked and awful. Yeah. Like I said, it's like cities had their own like mini purges that yeah. were based on like race and it is terrible and everyone got away with it because no one actually cared about black people yeah. so anyway so they moved they're like no, yeah they're like this is this not a safe place so eunice attended local schools and then attended smith college in northampton massachusetts graduating with her bachelor's degree and then her master's um after graduating she worked as a social worker in new york in new jersey in the 1920s wow. before turning her sights to law she received her law degree from Fordham University in New York City, making her the first black woman to receive a law degree from that university. Fuck yeah. She passed the bar in 1933. That's right. We are three paragraphs in and Eunice is already fucking killing it. Right? <laughs> she's already like, she's just taking down first after first through this story. And she's just getting started. Like, it's crazy. 
So Eunice was a talented lawyer, having started her own practice with and drew the attention of prosecutor Thomas Dewey and then New York Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia. Yes, like the airport. That wasn't just a made-up name. They that was a <laughs> they thing. named after someone. That was a person. <laughs> Mayor LaGuardia and Dewey were assembling a team to take a bite out of organized crime, like the Avengers, except fewer aliens, sentient robots, and scrotum chin murderers. Just regular murderers. Yeah, just regular. I don't know. Maybe they had some scrotum chins in there. I'm not going to judge. They hired Eunice to work in Harlem, which was a predominantly black community. Yeah, so obviously sense. she was able to relate, you know, pass around and people weren't like scared of her and she was able right. to understand they what was like, going on. They weren't like, oh shit, on. you're going to arrest me. Like when yeah. I'm sure a white cop walked into the neighborhood. Yeah. So this made her the first black assistant district attorney in New York, and she was the only black woman on Dewey's staff. First on, first on, first. According Who's to- on first? Sorry. I had to. <laughs> I had to. I love you so much right now. It hurts. Good. In a good way, I hope. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, so according to one historian, Dewey was impressed with, quote, her command of Harlem pool halls as well as Albany committee rooms. Oh. So she, <laughs> I almost Sexy said. Sexy finger quotes. Like, she's a lady on the streets, but a freak in the bed. Like, she, she can move in any environment right. and be comfortable and effective, you know? A little about Thomas Dewey, because he's kind of a big deal through this story. He was a big shot prosecutor who made a career out of nailing mobsters, including Waxy Gordon and Dutch Schultz, which crippled his operations. And why do mobster names always sound like weird or vaguely racist? Um, I mean, those ones kind of do, but like John Dillinger doesn't. He didn't have you a know, nickname, though. He was public enemy number one, right? I guess. I know. But it's fun. The, uh, you know, our northern mobsters are better. Yeah. So despite these successes, one big fish eluded Actually, the They're police. north, too, because they're in Boston, aren't yeah. they? Or New York. Yep. Uh, our Midwestern mobsters. Our Midwestern mobsters were a fucking trip, let me tell you. And we had most of them pass through here because uh, Minnesota didn't arrest people. Yeah. We were a safe haven for mobsters. Yeah, we basically... So I don't know oh, if it was all sorry. of Minnesota or if it was like maybe Particularly St. Paul and Minneapolis but, were a safe haven for gangsters. So... There was like a weird deal with the cops. We basically were like, you can be here and we're not going to mess with you, but don't start trouble. Like, yeah, it was like, we'll don't rob cool. us and you can stay here and we won't arrest yeah. you. We'll be cool if you're cool. And there's actually a bunch of different uh, so, like, mob John Dillinger tours. definitely came here. Yeah, but there's a bunch of different mob so. tours in the cities, which we need to go on. We keep saying every Halloween I've, we're going to do it. I've been one in high school. It wasn't I around forgive Halloween. you because we didn't know. Yeah, each we didn't other know then. each other. Then. Okay. Anyway, you continue. had this like weird anxiety, like why do I feel like something is missing? Something's wrong. I was in high school, just being like, I hate everything. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm missing out. Anyway, so um, one big fish eluded the police. Mafia kingpin Charles Lucky Luciano, and that name should be pretty familiar. So I'm, and yeah, I was so I'm not going to go deep into him because this is not his story right. he's kind he's of a mob a boss end of story just know he's a bad dude and a big fucking deal like if you know mob names there's al capone john dillinger lucky luciano is in there he's a common yeah, he's one name. of the big he's one of the big fish yeah 
So now, uh, as assistant district attorney, Eunice found most of the cases she was prosecuting were prostitution cases. In these cases, she noticed a pattern. Many of the sex workers that uh, were being represented by the same lawyers and bondsmen and all had similar alibis and stories to get themselves acquitted. So it was like just different women. It was the same lawyer, same bondsman, same story. Like... I don't know what the what the excuse or what the like. Oh, I just fell on him. It was no. Like, I think it would be more. Usually, it's not so much about like the act of sex itself. It's about receiving money. Okay. So it would be more like, oh, he was paying. He wasn't paying me for that. He, you know, he was paying me for X, Y, and Z, not the sex. That's my boyfriend, right? Exactly. And so these same alibis keep going through, almost like word for word. And she's like, "God, why do I have deja vu all the fucking time?" Right. <laughs> so Eunice reasoned that the mob was involved with the sex workers and were helping them when they were arrested. Now, well, yeah, because that would be a chunk of profit down the drain if they didn't. Right. Well, here's the thing: we support sex workers. We want safe. We want sex safe. workers to be safe. safe. And supported and all of that. And if this was a story of people helping sex workers who were getting arrested, which like they shouldn't be, that would be cool. This is not that story because the mob is involved and they are not cool. (laughs) They're like the worst pimp you can have. So Eunice correctly deduced that Lucky Luciano's mob was running a prostitution ring and took 50% of each woman's earnings in exchange for protection from the law. And here's the thing. It's either you're on your own, you're more at risk of violence, right? And you're if you, if you getting get arrested. Caught, you're fucked. Yeah. And so I'm sure it seemed like a good deal, but they're taking advantage of these oh, sex workers. Like, it's absurd. And it's probably one of those cases that once you're in and with the mob... They're not going to want you to oh, like, no, 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 stop no. being a sex worker. There's no backing out. No. You're in, you're in. And actually, I have a personal anecdote that relates to all that that I will be telling at the end. Okay. Because I, I have a little family history with Lucky Luciano. Oh. Yeah. So Eunice correctly deduced that Lucky Luciano's... Oh. Eunice worked to assemble a massive case against Lucky Luciano. Dewey was eager to nail Luciano and ordered raids on local brothels and arrested a hundred sex workers. Many of them agreed to testify in regards to the mob's prostitution ring supporting Eunice's case. So Eunice is assembling the evidence and getting all that and Dewey's like, I'll get you the people. I fucking love what you're doing. You're awesome. Let's get this done. Like he's very, he comes off very good in the story. I didn't do a lot of research into him as a person, but he comes off very good and supportive of Eunice in this story. So we we don't have to call him an asshole right now. Um, Dewey and Eunice brought the case against Lucky Luciano and also stuck him with the mobster's greatest enemy, tax evasion. (laughs) <laughs> like if you it's ever like, hear a mob well, boss being it, taken it, it down was, it was when i talked about the queens of the sydney underworld that's what ended up bringing both of them it's down was fucking tax- taxes it's always tax evasion because you can fucking it, you it's can make easier. as much money as you want and if they nail you with oh you now suddenly owe hundreds of thousands of dollars and you're going to jail because you never paid your taxes well and in this case uh so they were able to uh prove that lucky so lucky luciana was living a pretty plush lifestyle despite only reporting an income of twenty two thousand five hundred as tax returns so they're like how did you get all of this like this huge just for this Yeah. yeah the trial was a sensation 
Any guesses as to the verdict? Guilty? No, it's actually probably not guilty. You should trust your gut. Guilty. Good. In a landmark ruling, Lucky Luciano was sentenced to 30 to 40 years in prison, though he was paroled in 1946 and deported to Italy. I don't care. This is his story. This was one of the most successful court actions against organized crime in our country's history, hurting Luciano's continued illegal shenanigans and his political corruption and all of his bullshit. Yeah, a lot of mobsters actually never ended up going to court, or when they did, they got off and then, you know, were murdered by police later. Yep. I shouldn't say murdered because it wasn't murder. Like they were rightfully killed by the police. Yeah, but it was most of a- them were like legit. Like if you watch the movie Dillinger, that had you know Johnny Depp, um, yeah, Public yeah, Enemy Johnny Number One. Depp, pop, that, that's what it's called. Like they taught it wasn't like Babyface Nelson was like literally being chased by the cops when he was shot dead. Yeah. And John Dillinger like was just on the sidewalk. He was going and to got a movie. Shot. It, that was a little sad. He was, he, yeah, he was like set up by the girl he was with, and there was, was some shit. Was, I, I like legit feel bad for John Dillinger sometimes, but I'm like, you are also kind of a terrible human being. So I have a joke in here to lighten the mood. Okay, good. So I talked about political corruption. I wrote. Come on, guy. They don't need help with that. (laughs) Not really. So Lucky Luciano's own biographer described the case as, quote, a landmark in legal history as it was the first against a major organized crime figure for anything other than tax evasion. So, I mean, they that was the cherry on top. It was right. Yeah, no, they nailed him for the prostitution and then we're like, oh, by the way, he also evades taxes in case there's any doubt that this guy is a piece of shit. Right. Because of Eunice's work and general amazingness, Dewey promoted her to the head of his special sessions bureau, which handled all cases in the municipal court. So anything involving New York City law. That's a big ass city to be dealing with all the cases involved. That's awesome. Yeah. So Dewey earned international fame from Lucky Luciano's conviction, which he leveraged into two unsuccessful bids for the presidency. (laughs) Which is funny because I heard I his name. Laugh, but that's funny. But I heard his name Dewey. I was like, why does this sound so familiar? But I've seen like in documentaries the pins where it's like vote yeah. for Dewey or Dewey, yeah. the, you know. And so I was like, oh, it's that guy. That's see, what I he just did. think of the Dewey Decimal System. That too. That guy was creepy though. Yeah. He was a pervert. I didn't he know was that. A, he was like a see, career sexual harasser. I don't know a lot about that guy. Just whenever I hear Dewey, I just go, yep. the Dewey Decimal System. See, I think uh, DuckTales. Well. <laughs> Less pervy. Yeah. Maybe more furry-esque, which, <sighs> hey, Anyways, I'm not gonna yuck going to yuck on you, yum. You do you. Um, so I didn't do a ton of research into Dewey, but he comes off pretty well in this. He genuinely respected Eunice and her prosecution skills, and she accompanied him to political events and served as a casual advisor while working in the special sessions bureau. That's so awesome. she, so she's kind of like his buddy, maybe right hand, right hand woman isn't like strong enough no but like she like he really trusts her in her opinion Trusted and she's advisor. giving him advice yeah but that's not all she did in the 1920s Eunice was active in the Pan-African Congress which was a series of eight meetings from 1919 to 2014 obviously she was only involved in the ones where she was alive for uh, and these were held to address issues that African countries were slash are facing as a result of European colonization. Yep. It's an ongoing issue. It sucks. They should have another one of those soon. 
At some point, she married a man, uh, Liesl Carter Sr., who was one of the first black dentists in New York. First on first on first. Their only child, Liesl Carter Jr., followed in his mother's footsteps and graduated from law school and would later work in the JFK and Lyndon B. Johnson presidential administrations. That's awesome. Just excellence. Like, overachieving. Excellence on excellence on excellence. (laughs) Uh, Eunice headed the... Uh, headed the Special Sessions Bureau until 1945. After she retired from the Bureau, she didn't slow down. She worked as a private attorney, advised the United Nations on women's rights, worked for the National Council of Negro Women, and served as a national board member for the YMCA. That's ridiculous. I mean, awesome, but wow. Yeah. Talk about never retiring. She died on January 25th, 1970, at the age of 70. And I tried to find, like, what she died of. I'm sure it was just kind of like old age well it's just kind of like mine they never really said what elizabeth died of either it was just like yeah and she died well and that's probably a good thing if it's not notable enough to list it probably wasn't like exactly it's it's not like oh she was shot like i'm pretty sure they would list that she was hit by a bus being driven by a racist who was then strung up and killed and that was awesome but it sucked that she died sure I'm making. <laughs> that's that was a little. A, that's one that you need to take a step or two back. That was a dark narrative that just popped out. I'm so sorry. All right, legacy. So, uh, one of Liesel's children, Stephen L. Carter. Uh, so that was their son. Yep. And hit one yep. of his children. So Liesel Eunice, Jr.'s child. Yeah. So Eunice is his grandmother. Stephen L. Carter became a Yale law professor again. Like, just we're all gonna be lawyers. <laughs> I feel bad for the one kid who's like, I, I want to be I like wanna, grandpa. I want to be a dentist. I want to bummer. That's another cool thing, though. But I want it's like, I just want to bum around and, you know, I want car- to carve driftwood on the beach. Yeah. I, <laughs> I want to find the Loch Ness Monster, guys. That's my, that's my calling. <laughs> yeah. He's going to be a, you know, uh, pro cryptozoologist. He's going to be the one that finds Nessie. Yeah. He's going to actually be like the one to be like, dudes. It's in it's his here. blood. <laughs> but anyway, so Stephen L. Carter became a Yale law professor and wrote a biography about Eunice Carter entitled Invisible, the forgotten story of the black woman lawyer who took down America's most powerful mob store. <gasps> mob store? Ooh, mob store. <laughs> <laughs> I want to go there. That sounds fun. I'm committing. <laughs> Which was published just in 2018. Oh, wow. So super recently. And I'm guessing that was the book that was yes. on the Instagram? Yep. Okay. Eunice Carter was living an amazing life that many might not expect from a black woman in the early 1900s. She was a lawyer working in New York City who helped to take down a major mob boss. In fact, it was so hard to imagine for some people that when the show Broadwalk... (laughs) <laughs> that should be our spinoff podcast boardwalk, boardwalk empire boardwalk empire featured a character loosely based on eunice so basically black female lawyer uh viewers called it a pathetic attempt to force diversity and trying to oh. appeal to pc culture because there was no way it could be realistic and this is what we were talking about before because black history is not strictly centered on the suffering and the oppression of right. black people that is an unfortunately huge part of it but we but need to talk about everyone. We have so many people who rose up. Like, I feel like that's almost the biggest testament. It's like society did everything to possible. To shut these people down. To shut these people down and turn them into property. And yet, 
they were like, fuck you, fuck you. I'm going to do better. I'm going to rise above this and I'm going to help other people rise up around me. Like, oh, it's incredible. We're going to rise together, motherfuckers. And actually, my next my next note regarding the boardwalk empire issue Look, I get it. Our country has worked absurdly hard at keeping black people down, but black people consistently have risen above and beyond these attempts. Yay. That's not to say Eunice didn't face racism and sexism. She was paid less, passed over for promotions, and lived in a generally super racist society. So, like, a lot of the same stuff that we, you know, even experience It's racist and sexist. Like, there's a little bit of everything still thrown in there. But it didn't cripple her. No. And it was not the central part of her. Like, I'm reading this. I'm waiting for the moment where someone's like, you're a black woman. Fuck you. And and maybe if I did more digging, I would find it. But so that that it was just like she would be like, fuck you, too. Yeah. So that is Eunice Carter. And I have in my notes your anecdote. My small personal story. Okay. So when my grandfather was growing up during Prohibition, his father made money brewing bathtub hooch. Which he sold to Lucky Luciano's mob. Nice. And uh, I think I knew that. I think you've told me this. I've probably. I'm oddly proud of this story. I mean, it's I just would so be cool. I've got. I've got uh, on the. So this is my mother's father. Yep. On my dad's side, I have a Bonnie and Clyde story. No. Okay. So maybe for another. I should have told that. Yeah. Come on. Your Bonnie and Bonnie episode when we did Halloween covered by Parker. Anyway. Um, so basically my grandfather, he was growing up during the depression, prohibition, all that. He needed a job. And one, one day lucky Luciano's goons come around and they're picking up the hooch and doing their thing. And they're like, Hey, do you need a job? He's like, you bet your ass. I need a job. And they're like, well, we have one. He's like, okay, what do I have to do? And they're like, you just have to ride in a car, just ride in the back of a car. And my grandfather's like, well, that seems fucking easy enough. And, you know, I'm going to get paid pretty well to what? Ride in the back of a car? Like, what's going on? So this is, in, he needed a job in a douche, in a, in a douche. Yeah. In a douche. <laughs> I thought you were going to say in a douchey way. I was like, there's no douchey in, way to in, need a job. <laughs> like, if you need money, you need money. <laughs> in addition to brewing hooch. Or was it his well, dad his, his that dad brewed hooch? His dad was brewing okay. the hooch. So you he know, was just there and they yeah. were like, hey, can you do something for us? Okay, so he's riding in the back of this car. Well, that's what he's offered. Okay. And he's like, is that all I have to do? And they're like, well, you also have to carry a gun. And my grandfather thought it over and he was really desperate, but he's like, I'm good. And they let, as far as I know, they let it go. He said no. But basically he knew that he was probably going to be accompanying to something either dangerous or shady or shitty. And once he was in, that you was don't it. get out. Yeah, no, the, like, that would have been the rest of his life. I mean, maybe I could Better have been a mafia you princess, and then you're good but he probably, I, my, my bloodline probably dead wouldn't have now. lasted that long. So yeah, that that's, that's the story my mom always tells me about how she could have been a mafia princess. Because <laughs> she's talks also about very that. proud of that story. That's funny. I but would yeah. be too. I mean that that was the way it was at the time. You know, you need money. You you do kind of whatever you can, and especially the mob preyed on people who were desperate and didn't understand the repercussions right. of riding in the back of a car with a gun. You know. Well, the, so the thing knows? about that, too, is it's like you're going to be the expendable one in that situation. Oh, yeah. They don't give a shit about you. So you're, you're probably just no there thanks. to fill out the numbers and look tough. Yeah, exactly. And it's like you have the gun in case shit goes sideways. So 
but yeah, that's, uh, that's that's very interesting. How my mom almost became a mafia princess, although she wasn't even born at the time. Yeah, you know, <laughs> he wasn't married. No, that shit was going down. <laughs> All right. Well, Kelly. Nope. You have to go first this okay, time. Okay, I have to go first. I was trying to think when we breaked between last yep. episode and this episode, like, what was all that shit I was thankful for? Why can I never remember when we're recording? I know. I need to write it down, like, in uh, my planner and then bring my planner to recording and I be know. like, this is what I've been thankful for. Okay. Here's what I'm thankful for. Uh, our podcast has been getting a lot more listens. We've been getting a lot more support on social media, Patreon, everything. We're taking additional steps to, you know, get merch, putting more money into the podcast. You know, when we started this out, we really had no idea where it was going to go. And in the past year, we've upgraded our equipment. We've uh, done more with our branding and our networking. We've done guest spots on other podcasts. We We're going to have guests coming up. Yeah. I mean, it's like I'm just thankful for all of you listeners for tuning in with us every week and like it's it's crazy because people definitely find us later on and you know kind of go through the episodes but when we release a new episode that listen like, number whoop. is crazy like you guys are like it's monday i gotta listen to wedding about history and i'm just and i mean anything we can do to improve yeah let us know because we want to keep you coming back. We want you to enjoy our episodes. Absolutely. And so thank you guys so much for listening wherever you are. Please share with a friend. Five stars. I'm already getting to the, you know, plug spiel, but whatever. Um, this is the part they skip. We have some interesting stuff coming out on Patreon very soon, too. And if you're on yes. Patreon, you Actually, get it access to... Actually, it might be out by now. It might be out by now. Depending on how fast I edit a video. <laughs> but if you're on Patreon, you get access to announcements and special offers and things like that before yes. our normal and like, there, social media followers. There's going to be a lot more coming up. We haven't been super active, but we've got some plans and some stuff in the pipeline. Yep. I am working on my uh, kid-friendly... Oh, yeah. episodes so we understand that our episode our regular whitey about history is not quite fucking family friendly for obvious reasons so we're working on creating specialized scripts of the women we've already covered but specifically where they're child friendly so no swearing um a little more energetic you know just it'll just be one of us telling the story so that right. way you can shorten share this with versions your, yeah so that way you can share this with your kids because I wish I knew about some of these women when I was younger. Right. And I we want this we want women's history to be more acceptable to younger audiences. And we right. understand that's not what we are as whiny about history. That's not our goal. But if, if we can help it. Yeah. If and we, we might can not do cover it as a side. All the women that we've covered, but we'll we'll pick some here and there and you know, maybe once a month we'll do, you know, release a new episode of that. Unless it's, like, super popular, then, you know, we can right. do it more often. I mean, I'm probably not going to do a kid-friendly version of KB, Carrie Davies, who right, shot her rapist. Yeah, no, but... there's, there's certain women that there are, aren't are kid-friendly versions. Yeah. You know, and like anything with Nazis. Uh, well, maybe. I don't know if I could contain my rage enough to not swear. He's like, Nazis! <laughs> it's like half the episode yeah, exactly. just grunting yeah. angrily. But yeah, thank you so much for listening. And please continue to like yourself on social media. Become a patron if you can afford it. You can do it for as little as $1 a month. And those episodes will be available $1. at the $1 a month level because you get yes, access to our entire Patreon. stuff for the more you donate. And, so, yeah. you know, merch and our adoration. Yeah. So thank you so much. Kelly, what are you thankful for? Heart. The same thing.
piggybacking well, off yeah, of my shit, right? I guess. No, and I'm, I'm thankful for, we're actually doing, I guess I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. Never mind. We're doing a collaboration. We're recording a collaboration tomorrow. And I'm like, I'm thankful because this person like legit want, like was like, no, I've been meaning to like ask you guys about this. And we so didn't like, I, I don't know. He like, he's not a friend. He's not someone we no, know. No, we don't know him podcasting, at all. So that was really, and like, he's got a really amazing podcast. Like right. I've and been, we'll, we'll binging talk and more it's about it. But later when we know we can keep an eye out, keep an ear out because so, we got I'm just, shit. I'm thankful ruined. for that. And then I'm thankful for Kenny because I, I, I'm fine mentioning this because he's going to be on our podcast sometime in March. So what? he's from Earfloss. So watch out for that. And yeah, I'm just I'm thankful for everyone, both inside, like you said, inside and outside the podcasting community. That's just been so incredibly helpful and welcoming and loving and Gonna cry, guys. No, and Women's History Month is coming up, and we have some special stuff planned. Our fiftieth episode is coming up. Our one year, our fiftieth. I think they actually coincide because I think we took a two week break when we got sick once. I was gonna say I was sick, and then you were sick. Yeah. So I think I think our fiftieth episode and our one year might be the same episode. That or it might be one one week off. We'll see. So we're really excited for uh, what we've done and things to come. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Whining About Herstory. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Patreon, uh, yes. the website, whiningaboutherstory.com. Our email is whiningaboutherstory at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you on any and all platforms. And, you know, rate and review us wherever you listen. Five stars. Five stars. Only iTunes five stars. is best, although uh, like CastBox and Stitcher and what's the other one that I'm trying to think of? Podbean? No, it starts with an S again. It's not Stitcher. It's Spot. No, not no, Spotify. Not Spotify. I don't know. Something else. Special. I was podcast. gonna say SoundCloud, but I don't think that's right. <laughs> I don't think um, that's right either. Podchaser didn't start with an S. Okay. Um, Podchaser is another like big one because it's almost like a not iTunes, but it's like an IMDb for podcasts. Oh, cool. So if people go on there and rate us and share us, like that's a big thing. All right. So. Well, yeah, like us, follow us, star us, whatever you do, email us. We'd love to hear from you. But thank you for so. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of What About Herstory. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And have an empowered day. Bye. Bye. Water your shrub.